Book three, chapter eleven of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter eleven. Dusk. The wretched wife of the innocent man thus doomed to die fell under the sentence, as if she had been mortally stricken, but she uttered no sound, and so strong was the voice within her, representing that it was she, of all the world, who must uphold him in his misery, and not augment it, that it quickly raised her, even from that shock. The judges having to take part in a public demonstration out of doors, the tribunal adjourned, the quick noise and movement of the courts emptying itself by many passages had not ceased, when Lucy stood stretching out her arms towards her husband, with nothing in her face but love and consolation. "'If I might touch him, if I might embrace him once, O oh, good citizens, if you would have so much compassion for us!' There was but a jailer left, along with two of the four men who had taken him last night, and Barsad. The people had all poured out to the show in the streets. Barsad proposed to the rest, "'Let her embrace him, then. It is but a moment.' It was silently acquiesced in, and they passed her over the seats in the hall to a raised place, where he, by leaning over the dock, could fold her in his arms. "'Farewell, dear darling of my soul, my parting blessing on my love, we shall meet again where the weary are at rest.' They were her husband's words as he held her to his bosom. I can bear it, dear Charles. I am supported from above. Don't suffer for me. A parting blessing for our child. I send it to her by you. I kiss her by you. I say farewell to her by you. My husband, no, a moment. He was tearing himself apart from her. We shall not be separated long. I feel that this will break my heart by and by, but I will do my duty while I can, and when I leave her, God will raise up friends for her, as he did for me. Her father had followed her, and would have fallen on his knees to both of them, but that Darnay put out a hand and seized him, crying, No, no, what have you done, what have you done, that you should kneel to us? We know now what a struggle you made of old. We know now what you underwent when you suspected my descent, and when you knew it. We know now the natural antipathy you strove against, and conquered for her dear sake. We thank Thank you with all our hearts and all our love and duty. Heaven be with you. Her father's only answer was to draw his hands through his white hair and wring them with a shriek of anguish. It could not be otherwise, said the prisoner. All things have worked together as they have fallen out. It was the always vain endeavour to discharge my poor mother's trust that first brought my fatal presence near you. Good could never come of such evil. A happier end was not in nature to so unhappy a beginning. Be comforted and forgive me. Heaven bless you. 
As he was drawn away, his wife released him, and stood looking after him with her hands touching one another in the attitude of prayer, and with a radiant look upon her face, in which there was even a comforting smile. As he went out at the prisoner's door, she turned, laid her head lovingly on her father's breast, tried to speak to him, and fell at his feet. Then, issuing from the obscure corner from which she had never moved, Sidney Carton came and took her up. Only her father and Mr. Lorry were with her. His arm trembled as it raised her and supported her head. Yet there was an air about him that was not all of pity, that had a flush of pride in it. "'Shall I take her to a coach? I shall never feel her weight.' He carried her lightly to the door, and laid her tenderly down in a coach. Her father and their old friend got into it, and he took his seat beside the driver. When they arrived at the gateway where he had paused in the dark not many hours before, to picture to himself on which of the rough stones of the street her feet had trodden, he lifted her again, and carried her up the staircase to their rooms. There he laid her down on a couch, where her child and Miss Pross wept over her. "'Don't recall her to herself,' he said softly to the latter. "'She is better so. Don't revive her to consciousness while she only faints.' "'Oh, Carden, Carden, dear Carden!' cried little Lucy, springing up and throwing her arms passionately round him in a burst of grief. "'Now that you have come, I think you will do something to help Mamma, something to save Papa. Oh, look at her, dear Carden! Can you, of all the people who love her, bear to see her so?' He bent over the child and laid her blooming cheek against his face. He put her gently from him and looked at her unconscious mother. "'Before I go,' he said, and paused, "'I may kiss her?' It was remembered afterwards that when he bent down and touched her face with his lips, he murmured some words. The child who was nearest to him told them afterwards, and told her grandchildren, when she was a handsome old lady, that she heard him say, "'A life you love.' When he had gone out into the next room, he turned suddenly on Mr. Lorry and her father, who were following, and said to the latter, "'You had great influence but yesterday, Dr. Manette. Let it at least be tried. These judges and all the men in power are very friendly to you, and very recognizant of your services, are they not?' nothing connected with charles was concealed from me i had the strongest assurances that i should save him and i did he returned the answer in great trouble and very slowly try them again the hours between this and to-morrow afternoon are few and short but try i intend to try i will not rest a moment that's well I have known such energy as yours do great things before now, though never, he added, with a smile and a sigh together, such great things as this. But try, of little worth as life is when we misuse it, it is worth that effort. It would cost nothing to lay down if it were not. I will go, said Dr. Manette, to the prosecutor and the president straight, and I will go to others whom it is better not to name. I will write, too, and—but stay, there is a celebration in the streets, and no one will be accessible until dark. 
That's true. Well, it is a forlorn hope at the best, and not much the forlorner for being delayed till dark. I should like to know how you speed, though, mind, I expect nothing. When are you likely to have seen these dread powers, Dr. Manette? Immediately after dark, I should hope, within an hour or two from this. It will be dark soon after four. Let us stretch the hour or two. If I go to Mr. Lorry's at nine, shall I hear what you have done, either from our friend or from yourself? Yes. May you prosper. Mr. Lorry followed Sidney to the outer door, and, touching him on the shoulder as he was going away, caused him to turn. I have no hope, said Mr. Lorry, in a low and sorrowful whisper nor have I. If any one of these men, or all of these men, were disposed to spare him, which is a large supposition, for what is his life or any man's to them, I doubt if they durst spare him after the demonstration in the court. And so do I. I heard the fall of the axe in that sound. Mr. Lorry leaned his arm upon the doorpost, and bowed his face upon it. "'Don't despond,' said Carton, very gently. "'Don't grieve. I encouraged Dr. Manette in this idea, because I felt that it might one day be consolatory to her. Otherwise she might think his life was want only thrown away or wasted, and that might trouble her.' "'Yes, yes, yes,' returned Mr. Lorry, drying his eyes. "'You are right. But he will perish. There is no real hope.' "'Yes,' He will perish, there is no real hope, echoed Carton, and walked with a settled step downstairs. End of Book 3, Chapter 11 Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com Book 3, Chapter 12 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 12 Darkness. Sidney Carton paused in the street, not quite decided where to go. At Telson's banking house at nine, he said with a musing face. Shall I do well in the meantime to show myself? I think so. It is best that these people should know there is such a man as I here. It is a sound precaution, and may be a necessary preparation. But care, 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 let me think it out. Checking his steps, which had begun to tend towards an object, he took a turn or two in the already darkening street, and traced the thought in his mind to its possible consequences. His first impression was confirmed. It is best, he said, finally resolved, that these people should know there is such a man as I here, and he turned his face towards Saint-Antoine. Defarge had described himself that day as the keeper of a wine-shop in the Saint-Antoine suburb. It was not difficult for one who knew the city well to find his house without asking any question. Having ascertained its situation, Carton came out of those closer streets again, and dined at a place of refreshment, and fell sound asleep after dinner. 
For the first time in many years he had no strong drink. Since last night he had taken nothing but a little light thin wine, and last night he had dropped the brandy slowly down on Mr. Lorry's hearth like a man who had done with it. It was as late as seven o'clock when he awoke refreshed, and went out into the streets again. As he passed along towards Saint-Antoine, he stopped at a shop window, where there was a mirror, and slightly altered the disordered arrangement of his loose cravat, and his coat-collar, and his wild hair. This done, he went on direct to Defarge's, and went in. There happened to be no customer in the shop but Jacques Three of the restless fingers and the croaking voice. This man, whom he had seen upon the jury, stood drinking at the little counter, in conversation with the Defarges, man and wife. The vengeance assisted in the conversation, like a regular member of the establishment. As Carton walked in, took his seat, and asked in very indifferent French for a small measure of wine, Madame Defarge cast a careless glance at him, and then a keener, and then a keener, and then advanced to him herself, and asked him what it was he had ordered. He repeated what he had already said. "'English?' asked Madame Defarge, inquisitively raising her dark eyebrows. After looking at her, as if the sound of even a single French word was slow to express itself to him, he answered, in his former strong foreign accent, "'Yes, madame, yes, I am English.' Madame Defarge returned to her counter to get the wine, and, as he took up a Jacobin journal and feigned to pore over it, puzzling out its meaning, he heard her say, "'I swear to you, like Evremond!' Defarge brought him the wine, and gave him good evening. How? Good evening. Oh, good evening, citizen, filling his glass. Ah, and good wine. I drink to the Republic. Defarge went back to the counter, and said, Certainly, a little like. Madame sternly retorted, I tell you, a good deal like. Jacques Three pacifically remarked, He is so much in your mind, see you, madame. The amiable vengeance added with a laugh, Yes, my faith, and you are looking forward with so much pleasure to seeing him once more to-morrow. Carton followed the lines and words of his paper with a slow forefinger and with a studious and absorbed face. They were all leaning their arms on the counter, close together, speaking low. After a silence of a few moments, during which they all looked towards him without disturbing his outward attention from the Jacobin editor, they resumed their conversation. "'It is true what Madame says,' observed Jacques Three. "'Why stop? There is great force in that. Why stop?' "'Well, well,' reasoned Defarge, "'but one must stop somewhere. After all, the question is still where?' "'At extermination,' said Madame. "'Magnificent!' croaked Jacques Three. The vengeance also highly approved. "'Extermination is good doctrine, my wife,' said Defarge, rather troubled. "'In general I say nothing against it. But this doctor has suffered much. You have seen him to-day. You have observed his face when the paper was read.' 
"'I have observed his face,' repeated Madame, contemptuously and angrily. "'Yes, I have observed his face. I have observed his face to be not the face of a true friend of the Republic. Let him take care of his face.' "'And you have observed my wife,' said Defarge, in a deprecatory manner, "'the anguish of his daughter, which must be a dreadful anguish to him.' "'I have observed his daughter,' repeated Madame. "'Yes, I have observed his daughter more times than one. "'I have observed her to-day, and I have observed her other days. "'I have observed her in the court, and I have observed her in the street by the prison. "'Let me but lift my finger.' "'She seemed to raise it. "'The listener's eyes were always on his paper, "'and to let it fall with a rattle on the ledge before her, "'as if the axe had dropped.' "'The citizeness is superb,' croaked the juryman. "'She is an angel,' said the vengeance, and embraced her. "'As to thee,' pursued Madame, implacably addressing her husband, "'if it depended on thee, which happily it does not, "'thou wouldst rescue this man even now.' "'No,' protested Defarge, "'not if the lift this glass would do it, "'but I would leave the matter there. "'I say, stop there.' "'See you then, Jacques,' said Madame Defarge, wrathfully, "'and see you too, my little vengeance. "'See you both. "'Listen, for other crimes as tyrants and oppressors, "'I have this race a long time on my register.' doomed to destruction and extermination. Ask my husband, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge, without being asked. In the beginning of the great days, when the Bastille falls, he finds this paper of to-day, and he brings it home, and in the middle of the night, when this place is clear and shut, we read it, here on this spot, by the light of this lamp. Ask him, is that so? "'It is so,' assented Defarge. "'That night, I tell him, when the paper is read through "'and the lamp is burnt out, "'and the day is gleaming in above those shutters "'and between those iron bars, "'that I have now a secret to communicate. "'Ask him, is that so?' "'It is so,' assented Defarge again. "'I communicate to him that secret. "'I smite this bosom with these two hands, "'as I smite it now, and I tell him, "'Defarge, I was brought up among the fishermen of the seashore, "'and that peasant family, so injured by the two Evremont brothers, "'as that Bastille paper describes, is my family.' Defarge, that sister of the mortally wounded boy upon the ground, was my sister. That husband was my sister's husband. That unborn child was their child. That brother was my brother. That father was my father. Those dead are my dead. And that summons to answer for those things descends to me. Ask him, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge once more. "'Then tell wind and fire where to stop,' returned Madame. "'But don't tell me.' 
both her hearers derived a horrible enjoyment from the deadly nature of her wrath the listener could feel how white she was without seeing her and both highly commended it defarge a weak minority interposed a few words for the memory of the compassionate wife of the marquis but only elicited from his own wife a repetition of her last reply tell the wind and the fire where to stop not me customers entered and the group was broken up the english customer paid for what he had had perplexedly counted his change and asked as a stranger to be directed towards the national palace madame defarge took him to the door and put her arm on his in pointing out the road the english customer was not without his reflections then that it might be a good deed to seize that arm lift it and strike under it sharp and deep but he went his way and was soon swallowed up in the shadow of the prison wall at the appointed hour he emerged from it to present himself in mr lorry's room again where he found the old gentleman walking to and fro in restless anxiety he said he had been with lucy until just now and had only left her for a few minutes to come and keep his appointment her father had not been seen since he quitted the banking-house towards four o'clock she had some faint hopes that his meditation might save charles but they were very slight he had been more than five hours gone where could he be mr lorry waited until ten but dr manette not returning and he being unwilling to leave lucy any longer it was arranged that he should go back to her and come to the banking-house again at midnight in the meanwhile carton would wait alone by the fire for the doctor he waited and waited and the clock struck twelve but dr manette did not come back mr lorry returned and found no tidings of him and brought none where could he be they were discussing this question and were almost building up some weak structure of hope on his prolonged absence when they heard him on the stairs the instant he entered the room it was plain that all was lost whether he had really been to any one or whether he had been all that time traversing the streets was never known as he stood staring at them they asked him no question for his face told them everything i cannot find it said he and i must have it where is it his head and throat were bare and as he spoke with a helpless look straying all around he took his coat off and let it drop on the floor where is my bench i have been looking everywhere for my bench and i can't find it what have they done with my work time presses i must finish those shoes they looked at one another and their hearts died within them come come said he in a whimpering miserable way let me get to work give me my work receiving no answer he tore his hair and beat his feet upon the ground like a distracted child don't torture a poor forlorn wretch he implored them with a dreadful cry but give me my work what is to become of us if these shoes are not done to-night lost utterly lost 
It was so clearly beyond hope to reason with him, or try to restore him, that, as if by agreement, they each put a hand upon his shoulder, and soothed him to sit down before the fire, with a promise that he should have his work presently. He sank into the chair, and brooded over the embers, and shed tears. As if all that had happened since the garret time were a momentary fancy or a dream, Mr. Lorry saw him shrink into the exact figure that Defarge had had in keeping. Affected and impressed with terror as they both were by the spectacle of ruin, it was not a time to yield to such emotions. His lonely daughter, bereft of her final hope and reliance, appealed to them both too strongly. Again, as if by agreement, they looked at one another with one meaning in their faces. Carton was the first to speak. The last chance is gone. It was not much. Yes, he had better be taken to her. But before you go, will you for a moment steadily attend to me? Don't ask me why I make the stipulations I am going to make, and exact the promise I am going to exact. I have a reason, a good one. I do not doubt it, answered Mr. Lorry. Say on. The figure in the chair between them was all the time monotonously rocking itself to and fro and moaning. They spoke in such a tone as they would have used if they had been watching by a sick-bed in the night. Carton stooped to pick up the coat, which lay almost entangling his feet. As he did so, a small case in which the doctor was accustomed to carry the lists of his day's duties fell lightly on the floor. Carton took it up and there was a folded paper in it. "'We should look at this,' he said. Mr. Lorry nodded his consent. He opened it and exclaimed, "'Thank God!' "'What is it?' asked Mr. Lorry, eagerly. "'A moment. Let me speak of it in its place. First, he put his hand in his coat and took another paper from it. "'That is the certificate which enables me to pass out of this city. Look at it, you see. Sidney Carton, an Englishman?' Mr. Lorry held it open in his hand, gazing in his earnest face. "'Keep it for me until to-morrow. I shall see him to-morrow, you remember, and I had better not take it into the prison. Why not? I don't know. I prefer not to do so. Now, take this paper that Dr. Manette has carried about him. It is a similar certificate, enabling him and his daughter and her child at any time to pass the barrier and the frontier. You see?' "'Yes.' perhaps he obtained it as his last and utmost precaution against evil yesterday when is it dated but no matter don't stay to look put it up carefully with mine and your own now observe i never doubted until within this hour or two that he had or could have such a paper it is good until recalled but it may be soon recalled and i have reason to think will be they are not in danger they are in great danger. They are in danger of denunciation by Madame Defarge. I know it from her own lips. I have overheard words of that woman's to-night, which have presented their danger to me in strong colours. I have lost no time, and since then I have seen the spy. He confirms me. He knows that a wood-sawyer, living by the prison wall, is under the control of the Defarges, and has been rehearsed by Madame Defarge as to his 
his having seen her, he never mentioned Lucy's name, making signs and signals to prisoners, it is easy to foresee that the pretense will be the common one, a prison plot, and that it will involve her life, and perhaps her child's, and perhaps her father's, for both have been seen with her at that place. Don't look so horrified. You will save them all. Heaven grant I may, Carton. But how?' I am going to tell you how. It will depend on you, and it could depend on no better man. This new denunciation will certainly not take place until after to-morrow, probably not until two or three days afterwards, more probably a week afterwards. You know it is a capital crime to mourn for, or sympathize with, a victim of the guillotine. She and her father would unquestionably be guilty of this crime, and this woman, the inveteracy of whose pursuit cannot be described, would wait to add that strength to her case, and make herself doubly sure. You follow me? So attentively, and with so much confidence in what you say, that for the moment I lose sight, touching the back of the doctor's chair, even of this distress. You have money, and can buy the means of travelling to the sea-coast as quickly as the journey can be made. Your preparations have been completed for some days to return to England. Early to-morrow have your horses ready, so that they may be in starting trim at two o'clock in the afternoon. It shall be done. His manner was so fervent and inspiring that Mr. Lorry caught the flame, and was as quick as youth. "'You are a noble heart. Did I say we could depend upon no better man? Tell her, to-night, what you know of her danger as involving her child and her father. Dwell upon that, for she would lay her own fair head beside her husband's cheerfully.' He faltered for an instant, then went on as before. "'For the sake of her child and her father, press upon her the necessity of leaving Paris, with them and you, at that hour. Tell her that it was her husband's last arrangement. Tell her that more depends upon it than she dare believe or hope. You think that her father, even in this sad state, will submit himself to her, do you not?' I am sure of it. I thought so. Quietly and steadily have all these arrangements made in the courtyard here, even to the taking of your own seat in the carriage. The moment I come to you, take me in and drive away. I understand that I wait for you under all circumstances. You have my certificate in your hand with the rest, you know, and will reserve my place. Wait for nothing but to have my place occupied, and then for England." "'Why, then,' said Mr. Lorry, grasping his eager but so firm and steady hand, "'it does not all depend on one old man, but I shall have a young and ardent man at my side.' "'By the help of heaven you shall. Promise me solemnly that nothing will influence you to alter the course on which we now stand pledged to one another.' "'Nothing, Carton.' remember these words to-morrow change the course or delay in it for any reason and no life can possibly be saved and many lives must inevitably be sacrificed i will remember them i hope to do my part faithfully and i hope to do mine now good-bye Though he said it with a grave smile of earnestness, and though he even put the old man's hand to his lips, he did not part from him then. 
he helped him so far to arouse the rocking figure before the dying embers as to get a cloak and hat put upon it, and to tempt it forth to find where the bench and work were hidden that it still moaningly besought to have. He walked on the other side of it, and protected it to the courtyard of the house where the afflicted heart, so happy in the memorable time when he had revealed his own desolate heart to it, outwatched the awful night. He entered the courtyard, and remained there for a few moments alone, looking up at the light in the window of her room. Before he went away, he breathed a blessing towards it, and a farewell. End of Book 3, Chapter 12, Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book 3, Chapter 13 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 13, 52 in the black prison of the conciergerie, the doomed of the day awaited their fate. They were in number as the weeks of the year. Fifty-two were to roll their afternoon on the life-tide of the city to the boundless, everlasting sea. Before their cells were quit of them, new occupants were appointed. Before their blood ran into the blood spilled yesterday, the blood that was to mingle with theirs to-morrow was already set apart. Two score and twelve were told off. From the farmer-general of seventy, whose riches could not buy his life, to the seamstress of twenty, whose poverty and obscurity could not save her. Physical diseases engendered in the vices and neglects of men will seize on victims of all degrees, and the frightful moral disorder, born of unspeakable suffering, intolerable oppression, and heartless indifference, smote equally without distinction. Charles Darnay, alone in a cell, had sustained himself with no flattering delusion, since he came to it from the tribunal. In every line of the narrative he had heard, he had heard his condemnation. He had fully comprehended that no personal influence could possibly save him, that he was virtually sentenced by the millions, and that units could avail him nothing. Nevertheless, it was not easy, with the face of his beloved wife fresh before him, to compose his mind to what it must bear. His hold on life was strong, and it was very, very hard to loosen. By gradual efforts and degrees, unclosed a little here, it clenched the tighter there, and when he brought his strength to bear on that hand and it yielded, this was closed again. There was a hurry, too, in all his thoughts, a turbulent and heated working of his heart that contended against resignation. If for a moment he did feel resigned, then his wife and child who had to live after him seemed to protest and to make it a selfish thing. But all this was at first. Before long, the consideration that there was no disgrace in the fate he must meet, and that numbers went the same road wrongfully and trod it firmly every day, sprang up to stimulate him. 
Next followed the thought that much of the future peace of mind enjoyable by the dear ones depended on his quiet fortitude. So, by degrees, he calmed into the better state, when he could raise his thoughts much higher and draw comfort down. Before it had set in dark on the night of his condemnation, he had travelled thus far on his last way. Being allowed to purchase the means of writing and a light, he sat down to write until such time as the prison lamps should be extinguished. He wrote a long letter to Lucy, showing her that he had known nothing of her father's imprisonment until he had heard of it from herself, and that he had been as ignorant as she of his father's and uncle's responsibility for that misery until the paper had been read. He had already explained to her that his concealment from herself of the name he had relinquished was the one condition, fully intelligible now, that her father had attached to their betrothal and was the one promise he had still exacted on the morning of their marriage. He entreated her, for her father's sake, never to seek to know whether her father had become oblivious of the existence of the paper, or had had it recalled to him for the moment, or for good, by the story of the tower on that old Sunday under the dear old plane-tree in the garden. If he had preserved any definite remembrance of it, there could be no doubt that he had supposed it destroyed with the Bastille, when he had found no mention of it among the relics of prisoners which the populace had discovered there, and which had been described to all the world. He besought her, though he added that he knew it was needless, to console her father, by impressing him through every tender means she could think of, with the truth that he had done nothing for which he could justly reproach himself, but had uniformly forgotten himself for their joint sakes. Next to her preservation of his own last grateful love and blessing, and her overcoming of her sorrow, to devote herself to their dear child, he adjured her as they would meet in heaven to comfort her father. To her father himself he wrote in the same strain, but he told her father that he expressly confided his wife and child to his care, and he told him this very strongly with the hope of rousing him from any despondency or dangerous retrospect towards which he foresaw he might be tending. To Mr. Lorry he commended them all, and explained his worldly affairs. That done, with many added sentences of grateful friendship and warm attachment, all was done. He never thought of Carton. His mind was so full of the others that he never once thought of him. He had time to finish these letters before the lights were put out. When he lay down on his straw bed, he thought he had done with this world. But it beckoned him back in his sleep, and showed itself in shining forms, free and happy, back in the old house in Soho, though it had nothing in it like the real house, unaccountably released and light of heart. He was with Lucy again, and she told him it was all a dream, and he had never gone away. A pause of forgetfulness, and then he had even suffered, and had come back to her, dead and at peace, and yet there was no difference in him. Another pause of oblivion, and he awoke in the sombre morning, unconscious where he was or what had happened, until it flashed upon his mind. This is the day of my death. 
Thus, had he come through the hours to the day when the fifty-two heads were to fall, and now, while he was composed, and hoped that he could meet the end with quiet heroism, a new action began in his waking thoughts, which was very difficult to master. He had never seen the instrument that was to terminate his life, how high it was from the ground, how many steps it had, where he would be stood, how he would be touched, whether the touching hands would be dyed red, which way his face would be turned, whether he would be the first or might be the last, these and many similar questions, in no wise directed by his will, obtruded themselves over and over again, countless times. Neither were they connected with fear. He was conscious of no fear. Rather, they originated in a strange, besetting desire to know what to do when the time came, a desire gigantically disproportionate to the few swift moments to which it referred, a wondering that was more like the wondering of some other spirit within his than his own. The hours went on as he walked to and fro, and the clocks struck the numbers he would never hear again. Nine, gone forever. Ten, gone forever. Eleven, gone forever. Twelve, coming on to pass away. After a hard contest with that eccentric action of thought, which had last perplexed him, he had got the better of it. He walked up and down, softly repeating their names to himself. The worst of the strife was over. He could walk up and down free from distracting fancies, praying for himself and for them. Twelve, gone for ever. He had been apprised that the final hour was three, and he knew he would be summoned some time earlier, inasmuch as the tumbrils jolted heavily and slowly through the streets. Therefore he resolved to keep two before his mind as the hour, and so to strengthen himself in the interval that he might be able, after that time, to strengthen others. Walking regularly to and fro with his arms folded on his breast, a very different man from the prisoner who had walked to and fro at La Force, he heard one struck away from him, without surprise. The hour had measured like most other hours. Devoutly thankful to heaven for his recovered self-possession, he thought, There is but another now, and turned to walk again footsteps in the stone passage outside the door. He stopped. The key was put in the lock, and turned. Before the door was opened, or as it opened, a man said, in a low voice in English, "'He has never seen me here. I have kept out of his way. Go you in alone. I wait near. Lose no time.' The door was quickly opened and closed, and there stood before him, face to face, quiet, intent upon him, with the light of a smile on his features and a cautionary finger on his lip, Sidney Carton. There was something so bright and remarkable in his look that, for the first moment, the prisoner misdoubted him to be an apparition of his own imagining. But he spoke, and it was his voice. He took the prisoner's hand, and it was his real grasp. "'Of all the people upon earth you least expected to see me,' he said, "'I could not believe it to be you. I can scarcely believe it now. You are not—' The apprehension came suddenly into his mind. A prisoner? No. 
I am accidentally possessed of a power over one of the keepers here, and in virtue of it I stand before you. I come from her, your wife, dear Darnay. The prisoner wrung his hand. I bring you a request from her. What is it? A most earnest, pressing, and emphatic entreaty, addressed to you in the most pathetic tones of the voice, so dear to you that you well remember. The prisoner turned his face partly aside. You have no time to ask me why I bring it, or what it means. I have no time to tell you. You must comply with it. Take off those boots you wear, and draw on these of mine." There was a chair against the wall of the cell behind the prisoner. Carton, pressing forward, had already, with the speed of lightning, got him down into it, and stood over him, barefoot. "'Draw on these boots of mine. Put your hands to them. Put your will to them. Quick!' Carton, there is no escaping from this place. It never can be done. You will only die with me. It is madness. It would be madness if I asked you to escape. But do I? When I ask you to pass out at that door, tell me it is madness and remain here. Change that cravat for this of mine, that coat for this of mine. While you do it, let me take this ribbon from your hair and shake out your hair like this of mine." with wonderful quickness and with a strength both of will and action that appeared quite supernatural he forced all these changes upon him the prisoner was like a young child in his hands carton dear carton it is madness it cannot be accomplished it never can be done it has been attempted and has always failed i implore you not to add your death to the bitterness of mine do I ask you, dear Darnay, to pass the door? When I ask that, refuse. There are pen and ink and paper on this table. Is your hand steady enough to write? It was when you came in. Steady it again, and write what I shall dictate. Quick, friend, quick! Pressing his hand to his bewildered head, Darnay sat down at the table. Carton, with his right hand in his breast, stood close beside him. Write exactly as I speak. To whom do I address it? To no one. Carton still had his hand in his breast. Do I date it? No. The prisoner looked up at each question. Carton, standing over him with his hand in his breast, looked down. If you remember, said Carton, dictating, the words that passed between us long ago, you will readily comprehend this when you see it. You do remember them, I know. It is not in your nature to forget them. He was drawing his hand from his breast. The prisoner, chancing to look up in his hurried wonder as he wrote, the hand stopped, closing upon something. "'Have you written forget them?' Carton asked. "'I have. Is that a weapon in your hand? No, I am not armed. What is it in your hand?' "'You shall know directly. Write on. There are but a few words more.' He dictated again. I am thankful that the time has come when I can prove them. That I do so is no subject for regret or grief. As he said these words with his eyes fixed on the writer, his hands slowly and softly moved down close to the writer's face. The pen dropped from Darnay's fingers on the table, and he looked about him vacantly. What vapour is that? he asked. Vapour? Something that crossed me? I'm conscious of nothing. There can be nothing here. Take up the pen and finish. Hurry, hurry. 
as if his memory were impaired or his faculties disordered the prisoner made an effort to rally his attention as he looked at carton with clouded eyes and with an altered manner of breathing carton his hand again in his breast looked steadily at him hurry hurry the prisoner bent over the paper once more if it had been otherwise carton's hand was again watchfully and softly stealing down i never should have used the longer opportunity if it had been otherwise the hand was at the prisoner's face i should but have had so much the more to answer for if it had been otherwise carton looked at the pen and saw it was trailing off into unintelligible signs carton's hand moved back to his breast no more the prisoner sprang up with a reproachful look but carton's hand was close and firm at his nostrils and carton's left arm caught him round the waist for a few seconds he faintly struggled with the man who had come to lay down his life for him but within a minute or so he was stretched insensible on the ground quickly but with hands as true to the purpose as his heart was carton dressed himself in the clothes the prisoner had laid aside combed back his hair and tied it with the ribbon the prisoner had worn then he softly called enter there come in and the spy presented himself you see said carton looking up as he kneeled on one knee beside the insensible figure putting the paper in the breast is your hazard very great mr carton the spy answered with a timid snap of his fingers my hazard is not that in the thick of business here if you are true to the whole of your bargain don't fear me i will be true to the death you must be mr carton if the tale of fifty-two is to be right being made right by you in that dress, I shall have no fear. Have no fear. I shall soon be out of the way of harming you, and the rest will soon be far from here, please God. Now, get assistance and take me to the coach. You, said the spy nervously, him man with whom I have exchanged. You go out at the gate by which you brought me in? Of course. I was weak and faint when you brought me in, and I am fainter now you take me out. The parting interview has overpowered me. Such a thing has happened here often, and too often. Your life is in your own hands. Quick, call assistance. You swear not to betray me, said the trembling spy, as he paused for a last moment. Man, man, returned Carton, stamping his foot, have I sworn by no solemn vow already to go through with this, that you waste the precious moments now? Take him yourself to the courtyard you know of. Place him yourself in the carriage. Show him yourself to Mr. Lorry. Tell him yourself to give him no restorative but air, and to remember my words of last night and his promise of last night, and drive away. The spy withdrew, and Carton seated himself at the table, resting his forehead on his hands. The spy returned immediately with two men. "'How then?' said one of them, contemplating the fallen figure. "'So afflicted to find that his friend has drawn a prize in the lottery of St. Guillotine?' "'A good patriot,' said the other, "'could hardly have been more afflicted if the aristocrat had drawn a blank.' They raised the unconscious figure, placed it on a litter they had brought to the door, and bent to carry it away. "'The time is short, Evremond,' said the spy in a warning voice. "'I know it well,' answered Carton. 
Be careful of my friend, I entreat you, and leave me. Come then, my children, said Barsad. Lift him, come away. The door closed, and Carton was left alone. Straining his powers of listening to the utmost, he listened for any sound that might denote suspicion or alarm. There was none. Keys turned, doors clashed, footsteps passed along distant passages. No cry was raised or hurry made that seemed unusual. Breathing more freely in a little while, he sat down at the table and listened again until the clock struck two. Sounds that he was not afraid of, for he divined their meaning, then began to be audible. Several doors were opened in succession, and finally his own. A jailer, with a list in his hand, looked in, merely saying, "'Follow me, Evremond,' and he followed into a large, dark room at a distance. It was a dark winter day, and what with the shadows within, and what with the shadows without, he could but dimly discern the others who were brought there to have their arms bound. Some were standing, some seated, some were lamenting and in restless motion, but these were few. The great majority were silent, and still looking fixedly at the ground. As he stood by the wall in a dim corner, while some of the fifty-two were brought in after him, one man stopped in passing, to embrace him, as having a knowledge of him. It thrilled him with a great dread of discovery. But the man went on. A very few moments after that, a young woman, with a slight girlish form, a sweet spare face, in which there was no vestige of colour, and large, widely opened, patient eyes, rose from the seat where he had observed her sitting, and came to speak to him. "'Citizen Evremond,' she said, touching him with her cold hand, "'I am a poor little seamstress who is with you in La Force.' He murmured for answer, true. I forget what you were accused of. Plot. Though the just heaven knows that I am innocent of any, is it likely? Who would think of plotting with a poor, little, weak creature like me? The forlorn smile with which she said it so touched him that tears started from his eyes. I am not afraid to die, citizen Evremond. But I have done nothing. I am not unwilling to die if the Republic, which is to do so much good to us poor, will profit by my death. But I do not know how that can be. Citizen Evremond, such a poor, weak little creature. As the last thing on earth that his heart was to warm and soften to, it warmed and softened to this pitiable girl. I heard you were released, Citizen Evremond. I hoped it was true. It was but I was again taken and condemned. If I may ride with you, Citizen Evremond, will you let me hold your hand? I am not afraid, but I am little and weak, and it will give me more courage. As the patient eyes were lifted to his face, he saw a sudden doubt in them, and then astonishment. He pressed the work-worn, hunger-worn young fingers, and touched his lips. Are you dying for him? she whispered, and his wife and child, hush, yes. Oh, you will let me hold your brave hand, stranger? Hush, yes, my poor sister, to the last. 
The same shadows that are falling on the prison are falling in that same hour of the early afternoon on the barrier with the crowd about it, when a coach going out of Paris drives up to be examined. "'Who goes here? Whom have we within? Papers!' The papers are handed out and read. "'Alexandre Manette, physician, French. Which is he?' This is he, this helpless, inarticulately murmuring, wandering old man, pointed out. Apparently the citizen doctor is not in his right mind. The revolution fever will have been too much for him. Greatly too much for him. Ha! Many suffer with it. Lucy, his daughter, French. Which is she? This is she. Apparently it must be. Lucy, the wife of Evremond, is it not? It is. Ha! Evremond has an assignation elsewhere. Lucy. Lucy, her child, English. This is she. She and no other. Kiss me, child of Evremond. Now thou hast kissed a good Republican, something new in thy family. Remember it. Sidney Carton, advocate, English. Which is he? He lies here in this corner of the carriage. He too is pointed out. Apparently the English advocate is in a swoon. It is hoped he will recover in the fresher air. It is represented that he is not in strong health, and has separated sadly from a friend who is under the displeasure of the Republic. Is that all? It's not a great deal that many are under the displeasure of the Republic and must look out at the little window. Jarvis Lorry, banker, English. Which is he? I am he, necessarily, being the last. It is Jarvis Lorry who has replied to all the previous questions. It is Jarvis Lorry who has alighted and stands with his hand on the coach door, replying to a group of officials. They leisurely walk round the carriage and leisurely mount the box to look at what little luggage it carries on the roof. The country people hanging about press nearer to the coach doors and greedily stare in. A little child, carried by its mother, has its short arm held out for it, that it may touch the wife of an aristocrat who has gone to the guillotine. Behold your papers, Jarvis Lorry, countersigned. One can depart, citizen. One can depart. Forward, my postilions. A good journey. I salute you, citizens and the first danger passed. These are again the words of Jarvis Lorry, as he clasps his hands and looks upward. There is terror in the carriage, there is weeping, there is the heavy breathing of the insensible traveller. "'Are we not going too slowly? Can they not be induced to go faster?' asked Lucy, clinging to the old man. "'It would seem like flight, my darling. I must not urge them too much.' It would rouse suspicion. Look back, look back, and see if we are pursued. The road is clear, my dearest. So far we are not pursued. Houses in twos and threes pass by us. Solitary farms, ruinous buildings, dye-works, tanneries and the like, open country, avenues of leafless trees. The hard, uneven pavement is under us. The soft, deep mud is on either side. Sometimes we strike into the skirting mud to avoid the stones that clatter us and shake us. Sometimes we stick in ruts and sloughs there. The agony of our 
impatience is then so great that in our wild alarm and hurry we are forgetting out and running, hiding, doing anything but stopping. Out of the open country, in again among ruinous buildings, solitary farms, dye-works, tanneries and the like, cottages in twos and threes, avenues of leafless trees. Have these men deceived us, and taken us back by another road? Is not this the same place twice over? Thank heaven! No! A village! Look back, look back, and see if we are pursued! Hush! The posting-house! leisurely our four horses are taken out leisurely the coach stands in the little street bereft of horses and with no likelihood upon it of ever moving again leisurely the new horses come into visible existence one by one leisurely the new postilions follow sucking and plaiting the lashes of their whips leisurely the old postilions count their money make wrong additions and arrive at dissatisfied results all the time our overfraught hearts are beating at a rate that would far outstrip the fastest gallop of the fastest horses ever foaled at length the new postilions are in their saddles and the old are left behind we are through the village up the hill and down the hill and on the low watery grounds suddenly the postilions exchange speech with animated gesticulation and the horses are pulled up almost on their haunches we are pursued ho within the carriage there speak then what is it asks mr lorry looking out at window how many did they say i do not understand you at the last post how many to the guillotine to-day fifty-two i said so a brave number my fellow-citizen here would have it forty-two ten more heads are worth having the guillotine goes handsomely i love it hi forward Whoop! the night comes on dark he moves more he is beginning to revive and to speak intelligibly he thinks they are still together he asks him by his name what he has in his hand o oh, piteous kind heaven and help us look out look out and see if we are pursued the wind is rushing after us and the clouds are flying after us and the moon is plunging after us and the whole wild night is in pursuit of us but so far we are pursued by nothing else end of book three chapter thirteen recording by paul adams www.yongai.com Book three, chapter fourteen of the Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter fourteen The Knitting Done in that same juncture of time when the fifty-two awaited their fate madame defarge held darkly ominous counsel with the vengeance and jacques three of the revolutionary jury not in the wine-shop did madame defarge confer with these ministers but in the shed of the wood-sawyer erst a mender of roads the sawyer himself did not participate in the conference but abided at a little distance like an outer satellite who was not to speak until required or to offer an opinion until invited 
"'But our Defarge,' said Jacques Three, "'is undoubtedly a good Republican, eh?' "'There is no better,' the voluble vengeance protested in her shrill notes, "'in France!' "'Peace, little vengeance,' said Madame Defarge, laying her hand with a slight frown on her lieutenant's lips. "'Hear me speak.' My husband, fellow-citizen, is a good Republican and a bold man. He has deserved well of the Republic, and possesses its confidence. But my husband has his weaknesses, and he is so weak as to relent towards this doctor. It is a great pity, croaked Jacques Three, dubiously shaking his head, with his cruel fingers at his hungry mouth. It is not quite like a good citizen. It is a thing to regret. See you, said Madame, I care nothing for this doctor, I. He may wear his head or lose it for any interest I have in him. It is all one to me. But the Evremond people are to be exterminated, and the wife and child must follow the husband and father. She has a fine head for it, croaked Jacques Three. I have seen blue eyes and golden hair there, and they looked charming when Samson held them up. Ogre that he was, he spoke like an epicure. Madame Defarge cast down her eyes and reflected a little. The child also, observed Jacques Three, with a meditative enjoyment of his words, has golden hair and blue eyes, and we seldom have a child there. It is a pretty sight. In a word, said Madame Defarge, coming out of her short abstraction, I cannot trust my husband in this matter. Not only do I feel since last night that I dare not confide to him the details of my projects, but also I feel that if I delay there is danger of his giving warning, and then they might escape. That must never be, croaked Jacques Three. No one must escape. We have not half enough as it is. We ought to have six score a day. In a word, Madame Defarge went on, my husband has not my reason for pursuing this family to annihilation, and I have not his reason for regarding this doctor with any sensibility. I must act for myself, therefore. Come hither, little citizen. The wood-sawyer, who held her in the respect, and himself in the submission of mortal fear, advanced with his hand to his red cap. Touching those signals, little citizen, said Madame Defarge sternly, that she made to the prisoners, you are ready to bear witness to them this very day? Aye, aye, why not, cried the sawyer, every day in all weathers from two to four, always signalling, sometimes with the little one, sometimes without. I know what I know, I have seen with my eyes. He made all manner of gestures while he spoke, as if in incidental imitation of some few of the great diversity of signals that he had never seen. Clearly plots, said Jacques Three transparently. There is no doubt of the jury, inquired Madame Defarge, letting her eyes turn to him with a gloomy smile. Rely upon the patriotic jury, dear citizeness. I answer for my fellow jurymen. Now let me see, said Madame Defarge, pondering again, yet once more, can I spare this doctor to my husband? I have no feeling either way. Can I spare him? 
"'He would count as one head,' observed Jacques Three in a low voice. "'We really have not heads enough. It would be a pity, I think.' "'He was signalling with her when I saw her,' argued Madame Defarge. "'I cannot speak of one without the other, and I must not be silent, and trust the case wholly to him, this little citizen here, for I am not a bad witness.' The Vengeance and Jacques Three vied with each other in their fervent protestations that she was the most admirable and marvellous of witnesses. The little citizen, not to be outdone, declared her to be a celestial witness. "'He must take his chance,' said Madame Defarge. "'No, I cannot spare him. You are engaged at three o'clock. You are going to see the batch of to-day executed. You?' The question was addressed to the wood-sawyer, who hurriedly replied in the affirmative, seizing the occasion to add that he was the most ardent of republicans, and that he would be in effect the most desolate of republicans, if anything prevented him from enjoying the pleasure of smoking his afternoon pipe in the contemplation of the droll national barber. He was so very demonstrative herein that he might have been suspected, perhaps was, by the dark eyes that looked contemptuously at him out of Madame Defarge's head, of having his small individual fears for his own personal safety every hour in the day. I, said Madame, am equally engaged at the same place. After it is over, say at eight to-night, come you to me in Saint-Antoine, and we will give information against these people at my section. The wood-sawyer said he would be proud and flattered to attend the citizeness. The citizeness, looking at him, he became embarrassed, evaded her glance as a small dog would have done, retreated among his wood, and hid his confusion over the handle of his saw. Madame Defarge beckoned the juryman and the vengeance a little nearer to the door, and there expounded her further views to them thus— she will now be at home, awaiting the moment of his death. She will be mourning and grieving. She will be in a state of mind to impeach the justice of the Republic. She will be full of sympathy with its enemies. I will go to her. "'What an admirable woman! What an adorable woman!' exclaimed Jacques Three, rapturously. "'Ah, my cherished!' cried the vengeance, and embraced her. "'Take you my knitting,' said Madame Defarge, placing it in her lieutenant's hands, "'and have it ready for me in my usual seat. Keep me my usual chair. Go you there straight, for there will probably be a greater concourse than usual to-day.' "'I willingly obey the orders of my chief,' said the vengeance, with alacrity, and kissing her cheek. "'You will not be late?' "'I shall be there before the commencement.' and before the tumbrils arrive be sure you are there my soul said the vengeance calling after her for she had already turned into the street before the tumbrils arrive madame defarge slightly waved her hand to imply that she heard and might be relied upon to arrive in good time and so went through the mud and round the corner of the prison wall the vengeance and the juryman looking after her as she walked away were highly appreciative of her fine figure and her superb moral endowments 
There were many women at that time, upon whom the time laid a dreadfully disfiguring hand, but there was not one among them more to be dreaded than this ruthless woman, now taking her way along the streets, of a strong and fearless character, of shrewd sense and readiness, of great determination, of that kind of beauty which not only seems to impart to its possessor firmness and animosity, but to strike into others an instinctive recognition of those qualities. The troubled time would have heaved her up under any circumstances. But, imbued from her childhood with a brooding sense of wrong and an inveterate hatred of a class, opportunity had developed her into a tigress. She was absolutely without pity. If she ever had the virtue in her, it had quite gone out of her. It was nothing to her that an innocent man was to die for the sins of his forefathers. She saw not him, but them. It was nothing to her that his wife was to be made a widow, and his daughter an orphan. That was insufficient punishment, because they were her natural enemies and her prey, and as such had no right to live. To appeal to her was made hopeless, by her having no sense of pity, even for herself. If she had been laid low in the streets, in any of the many encounters in which she had been engaged, she would not have pitied herself, nor, if she had been ordered to the axe to-morrow, would she have gone to it with any softer feeling than a fierce desire to change places with the man who sent her there. Such a heart Madame Defarge carried under her rough robe. Carelessly worn, it was a becoming robe enough in a certain weird way, and her dark hair looked rich under her coarse red cap. Lying hidden in her bosom was a loaded pistol. Lying hidden at her waist was a sharpened dagger. Thus accoutred, and walking with the confident tread of such a character, and with the supple freedom of a woman who had habitually walked in her girlhood barefooted and bare-legged on the brown sea-sand, Madame Defarge took her way along the streets. Now, when the journey of the travelling coach, at that very moment waiting for the completion of its load, had been planned out last night, the difficulty of taking Miss Pross in it had much engaged Mr. Lorry's attention. It was not merely desirable to avoid overloading the coach, but it was of the highest importance that the time occupied in examining it and its passengers should be reduced to the utmost, since their escape might depend on the saving of only a few seconds here and there. Finally, he had proposed, after anxious consideration, that Miss Pross and Jerry, who were at liberty to leave the city, should leave it at three o'clock, in the lightest wheeled conveyance known to that period. Unencumbered with luggage, they would soon overtake the coach, and, passing it and preceding it on the road, would order its horses in advance, and greatly facilitate its progress during the precious hours of the night, when delay was the most to be dreaded. 
seeing in this arrangement the hope of rendering real service in that pressing emergency miss pross hailed it with joy she and jerry had beheld the coach start had known who it was that solomon brought had passed some ten minutes in tortures of suspense and were now concluding their arrangements to follow the coach even as madame defarge taking her way through the streets now drew nearer and nearer to the else deserted lodging in which they held their consultation now what do you think mr cruncher said miss pross whose agitation was so great that she could hardly speak or stand or move or live what do you think of our not starting from this courtyard another carriage having already gone from here to-day it might awaken suspicion my opinion miss returned mr cruncher is as you're right likewise what i'll stand by you right or wrong i am so distracted with fear and hope for our precious creatures said miss pross wildly crying that i am incapable of forming any plan are you capable of forming any plan my dear good mr cruncher respectin the future spear o life miss returned mr cruncher i hope so respecting any present use of this here blessed old ed of mine i think not would you do me the favour miss to take notice of two promises and wows what it is my wishes fur to record in this here crisis oh for gracious sake cried miss pross still wildly crying record them at once and get them out of the way like an excellent man first said mr cruncher who was all in a tremble and who spoke with an ashy and solemn visage then poor things well out of this never no more will i do it never no more i am quite sure mr cruncher returned miss pross that you will never do it again whatever it is and i beg you not to think it necessary to mention more particularly what it is no miss returned jerry it shall not be named to you second them poor things well out of this and never no more will i interfere with mrs cruncher's flopping never no more whatever housekeeping arrangement that may be said miss pross striving to dry her eyes and compose herself i have no doubt it is best that mrs cruncher should have it entirely under her own superintendence oh my poor darlings i go so far as to say miss moreover proceeded mr cruncher with a most alarming tendency to hold forth as from a pulpit and let my words be took down and took to mrs cruncher through yourself that what my opinions respect and flopping has undergone a change and that what i only hope with all my heart as mrs cruncher may be a flopping at the present time there 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 i hope she is my dear man cried the distracted miss pross and i hope she finds it answering her expectations forbid it proceeded mr cruncher with additional solemnity additional slowness and additional tendency to hold forth and hold out as anything what i have ever said or done should be visited on my earnest wishes for them poor creatures now forbid it as we shouldn't all flop if it was anyways convenient to get em out of this here dismal risk forbid it miss what i say forbid it this was mr cruncher's conclusion after a protracted but vain endeavour to find a better one 
and still Madame Defarge, pursuing her way along the streets, came nearer and nearer. "'If we ever get back to our native land,' said Miss Pross, "'you may rely upon my telling Mrs. Cruncher as much as I may be able to remember and understand of what you have so impressively said, and at all events you may be sure that I shall bear witness to your being thoroughly in earnest at this dreadful time. Now, pray, let us think, my esteemed Mr. Cruncher, let us think.' Still Madame Defarge, pursuing her way along the streets, came nearer and nearer. "'If you were to go before,' said Miss Pross, "'and stop the vehicle and horses from coming here, and were to wait somewhere for me, wouldn't that be best?' Mr. Cruncher thought it might be best. "'Where could you wait for me?' asked Miss Pross. Mr. Cruncher was so bewildered that he could think of no locality but Temple Bar. Alas, Temple Bar was hundreds of miles away, and Madame Defarge was drawing very near indeed. "'By the cathedral door,' said Miss Pross, "'would it be much out of the way to take me in near the great cathedral door between the two towers?' "'No, Miss,' answered Mr. Cruncher. "'Then, like the best of men,' said Miss Pross, "'go to the posting-house straight, and make that change.' "'I am doubtful,' said Mr. Cruncher, hesitating and shaking his head, "'about leaving of you, you see. We don't know what may happen.' "'Heaven knows we don't,' returned Miss Pross. "'But have no fear for me. Take me in at the cathedral, at three o'clock, or as near it as you can, and I am sure it will be better than our going from here. I feel certain of it. There, bless you, Mr. Cruncher. Think not of me, but of the lives that may depend on both of us.' This exordium, and Miss Pross's two hands in quite agonised entreaty clasping his, decided Mr. Cruncher. With an encouraging nod or two, he immediately went out to alter the arrangements, and left her by herself to follow, as she had proposed. The having originated a precaution, which was already in course of execution, was a great relief to Miss Pross. The necessity of composing her appearance, so that it should attract no special notice in the streets, was another relief. She looked at her watch, and it was twenty minutes past two. She had no time to lose, but must get ready at once." afraid in her extreme perturbation of the loneliness of the deserted rooms and of half-imagined faces peeping from behind every open door in them miss pross got a basin of cold water and began laving her eyes which were swollen and red haunted by her feverish apprehensions she could not bear to have her sight obscured for a minute at a time by the dripping water but constantly paused and looked round to see that there was no one watching her in one of those pauses she recoiled and cried out for she saw a figure standing in the room the basin fell to the ground broken and the water flowed to the feet of madame defarge by strange stern ways and through much staining blood those feet had come to meet that water madame defarge looked coldly at her and said the wife of evremond where is she it flashed upon Miss Pross's mind that the doors were all standing open, and would suggest the flight, 
her first act was to shut them there were four in the room and she shut them all she then placed herself before the door of the chamber which lucy had occupied madame defarge's dark eyes followed her through this rapid movement and rested on her when it was finished miss pross had nothing beautiful about her years had not tamed the wildness or softened the grimness of her appearance but she too was a determined woman in her different way and she measured madame defarge with her eyes every inch you might from your appearance be the wife of lucifer said miss pross in her breathing nevertheless you shall not get the better of me i am an englishwoman madame defarge looked at her scornfully but still with something of miss pross's own perception that they two were at bay she saw a tight hard wiry woman before her as mr lorry had seen in the same figure a woman with a strong hand in the years gone by she knew full well that miss pross was the family's devoted friend miss pross knew full well that madame defarge was the family's malevolent enemy on my way yonder said madame defarge with a slight movement of her hand towards the fatal spot where they reserve my chair and my knitting for me i am come to make my compliments to her in passing i wish to see her i know that your intentions are evil said miss pross and you may depend upon it i'll hold my own against them each spoke in her own language neither understood the other's words both were very watchful and intent to deduce from look and manner what the unintelligible words meant it will do her no good to keep herself concealed from me at this moment said madame defarge good patriots will know what that means let me see her go tell her that i wish to see her do you hear if those eyes of yours were bed-winches returned miss pross and i was an english four-poster they shouldn't loose a splinter of me no you wicked foreign woman i am your match madame defarge was not likely to follow these idiomatic remarks in detail but she so far understood them as to perceive that she was set at naught woman imbecile and pig-like said madame defarge frowning i take no answer from you i demand to see her either tell her that i demand to see her or stand out of the way of the door and let me go to her this with an angry explanatory wave of her right arm i little thought said miss pross that i should ever want to understand your nonsensical language but i would give all i have except the clothes i wear to know whether you suspect the truth or any part of it neither of them for a single moment released the other's eyes madame defarge had not moved from the spot where she stood when miss pross first became aware of her but she now advanced one step i am a briton said miss pross i am desperate i don't care an english tuppence for myself i know that the longer i keep you here the greater hope there is for my ladybird i'll not leave a handful of that dark hair upon your head if you lay a finger on me thus miss pross with a shake of her head and a flash of her eyes between every rapid sentence and every rapid sentence a whole breath thus miss pross who had never struck a blow in her life 
but her courage was of that emotional nature that it brought the irrepressible tears into her eyes this was a courage that madame defarge so little comprehended as to mistake for weakness ha ha she laughed you poor wretch what are you worth i address myself to that doctor then she raised her voice and called out, "'Citizen doctor, wife of Evremond, child of Evremond, any person but this miserable fool, answer the citizeness Defarge!' Perhaps the following silence, perhaps some latent disclosure in the expression of Miss Pross's face, perhaps a sudden misgiving, apart from either suggestion, whispered to Madame Defarge that they were gone three of the doors she opened swiftly and looked in those rooms are all in disorder there has been hurried packing there are odds and ends upon the ground there is no one in that room behind you let me look never said miss pross who understood the request as perfectly as madame defarge understood the answer if they are not in that room they are gone and can be pursued and brought back said madame defarge to herself as long as you don't know whether they are in that room or not you are uncertain what to do said miss pross to herself and you shall not know that if i can prevent your knowing it and know that or not know that you shall not leave here while i can hold you i have been in the streets from the first nothing has stopped me i will tear you to pieces but i will have you from that door said madame defarge we are alone at the top of a high house in a solitary courtyard we are not likely to be heard and i pray for bodily strength to keep you here while every minute you are here is worth a hundred thousand guineas to my darling said miss pross madame defarge made at the door miss pross on the instinct of the moment seized her round the waist in both her arms and held her tight it was in vain for madame defarge to struggle and to strike miss pross with the vigorous tenacity of love always so much stronger than hate clasped her tight and even lifted her from the floor in the struggle that they had the two hands of madame defarge buffeted and tore her face but miss pross with her head down held her round the waist and clung to her with more than the hold of a drowning woman soon madame defarge's hand ceased to strike and felt at her encircled waist it is under my arm said miss pross in smothered tones you shall not draw it i am stronger than you i bless heaven for it i hold you till one or other of us faints or dies madame defarge's hands were at her bosom miss pross looked up saw what it was struck at it struck out a flash and a crash and stood alone blinded with smoke all this was in a second as the smoke cleared leaving an awful stillness it passed out on the air like the soul of the furious woman whose body lay lifeless on the ground in the first fright and horror of her situation miss pross passed the body as far from it as she could and ran down the stairs to call for fruitless help happily she bethought herself of the consequences of what she did in time to check herself and go back 
It was dreadful to go in at the door again, but she did go in, and even went near it to get the bonnet and other things that she must wear. These she put on out on the staircase, first shutting and locking the door and taking away the key. She then sat down on the stairs a few moments to breathe and to cry, and then got up and hurried away. By good fortune she had a veil on her bonnet, or she could hardly have gone along the streets without being stopped. By good fortune, too, she was naturally so peculiar in appearance as not to show disfigurement like any other woman. She needed both advantages, for the marks of gripping fingers were deep in her face, and her hair was torn, and her dress, hastily composed with unsteady hands, was clutched and dragged a hundred ways. In crossing the bridge she dropped the door-key in the river. Arriving at the cathedral some few minutes before her escort, and waiting there, she thought, what if the key were already taken in a net? What if it were identified? What if the door were opened and the remains discovered? What if she were stopped at the gate, sent to prison, and charged with murder? In the midst of these fluttering thoughts the escort appeared, took her in, and took her away. "'Is there any noise in the streets?' she asked him. "'The usual noises,' Mr. Cruncher replied, and looked surprised by the question and by her aspect. "'I don't hear you,' said Miss Pross. "'What do you say?' It was in vain for Mr. Cruncher to repeat what he said. Miss Pross could not hear him. "'So I'll nod my head,' thought Mr. Cruncher, amazed. "'At all events she'll see that,' and she did. "'Is there any noise in the streets now?' asked Miss Pross again, presently. Again Mr. Cruncher nodded his head. "'I don't hear it.' "'Gone deaf in an hour,' said Mr. Cruncher, ruminating, with his mind much disturbed. "'What's come to her?' "'I feel,' said Miss Pross, "'as if there has been a flash and a crash, "'and that crash was the last thing I should ever hear in this life.' "'Blessed if she ain't in a queer condition,' said Mr. Cruncher, more and more disturbed. "'What can she have been a-taking to keep her courage up? Ark, there's a roll of them dreadful carts. You can hear that, miss?' "'I can hear,' said Miss Pross, seeing that he spoke to her. "'Nothing.' "'Oh, my good man, there was first a great crash, and then a great stillness, and that stillness seems to be fixed and unchangeable, never to be broken any more as long as my life lasts.' "'If she don't hear the roll of those dreadful carts, now very nigh their journey's end,' said Mr. Cruncher, glancing over his shoulder, "'it's my opinion that indeed she never will hear anything else in this world.' And indeed she never did. End of Book three, chapter fourteen, recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com. Book Three, Chapter Fifteen of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Fifteen The Footsteps Die Out For Ever. 
Along the Paris streets the death-carts rumble, hollow and harsh. Six tumbrels carry the day's wine to la guillotine, or the devouring and insatiate monsters imagined since imagination could record itself affused in the one realization, guillotine. And yet there is not in France, with its rich variety of soil and climate, a blade, a leaf, a root, a sprig, a peppercorn, which will grow to maturity under conditions more certain than those that have produced this horror, crush humanity out of shape once more under similar hammers, and it will twist itself into the same tortured forms. So the same seed of rapacious license and oppression over again, and it will surely yield the same fruit according to its kind. Six tumbrels roll along the streets. Change these back again to what they were, thou powerful enchanter time, and they shall be seen to be the carriages of absolute monarchs, the equipages of feudal nobles, the toilettes of flaring Jezebels, the churches that are not my father's house, but dens of thieves, the huts of millions of starving peasants. No, the great magician who majestic works out the appointed order of the Creator, never reverses his transformations. If thou be changed into this shape by the will of God, say the seers to the enchanted in the wise Arabian stories, then remain so. But if thou wear this form through mere passing conjuration, then resume thy former aspect. Changeless and hopeless, the tumbrils roll along. As the sombre wheels of the six carts go round, they seem to plough up a long, crooked furrow among the populace in the streets. Ridges of faces are thrown to this side and to that, and the ploughs go steadily onward. So used to the regular inhabitants of the houses to the spectacle that in many windows there are no people, and in some the occupation of the hands is not so much as suspended while the eyes survey the faces in the tumbrils. Here and there the inmate has visitors to see the sight. Then he points his finger with something of the complacency of a curator or authorized exponent to this cart and to this, and seems to tell who sat here yesterday and who there the day before. Of all the riders in the tumbrils, some observe these things and all things on their last roadside with an impassive stare others with a lingering interest in the ways of life and men some seated with drooping heads are sunk in silent despair again there are some so heedful of their looks that they cast upon the multitude such glances as they have seen in theatres and in pictures several close their eyes and think or try to get their straying thoughts together only one, and he a miserable creature of a crazed aspect, is so shattered and made drunk by horror that he sings and tries to dance. Not one of the whole number appeals by look or gesture to the pity of the people. There is a guard of sundry horsemen riding abreast of the tumbrils, and faces are often turned up to some of them, and they are asked some question. 
It would seem to be always the same question, for it is always followed by a press of people towards the third cart. The horsemen abreast of that cart frequently point out one man in it with their swords. The leading curiosity is to know which he is. He stands at the back of the tumbrel, with his head bent down, to converse with a mere girl who sits on the side of the cart and holds his hand. He has no curiosity or care for the scene about him, and always speaks to the girl. Here and there in the long street of Saint-Honoré cries are raised against him. If they move him at all, it is only to a quiet smile as he shakes his hair a little more loosely about his face. He cannot easily touch his face, his arms being bound. On the steps of a church, awaiting the coming up of the tumbrils, stand the spy and prison sheep. He looks into the first of them, not there. He looks into the second, not there. He already asks himself, has he sacrificed me? When his face clears as he looks into the third. Which is Evremond, says a man behind him. That, at the back there. With his hand in the girls? Yes. The man cried, Down, Evremond, to the guillotine, all aristocrats! Down, Evermond! Hush, hush! The spy entreats him timidly. And why not, citizen? He is going to pay the forfeit. It will be paid in five minutes more. Let him be at peace. But the man continued to exclaim, Down, Evermond! The face of Evermond is for a moment turned towards him. Evermond then sees the spy and looks attentively at him and goes his way. The clocks are on the stroke of three, and the furrow ploughed among the populace is turning round to come on into the place of execution, and end. The ridges thrown to this side and to that now crumble in and close behind the last plough as it passes on, for all are following to the guillotine. In front of it, seated in chairs, as in a garden of public diversion, are a number of women, busily knitting. On one of the foremost chairs stands the vengeance, looking about for her friend. "'Therese!' she cries in her shrill tones. "'Who has seen her? Therese Defarge!' "'She never missed before,' says a knitting woman of the sisterhood. "'No, nor will she miss now,' cries the vengeance, petulantly. "'Therese!' Louder, the woman recommends. "'Aye, louder, vengeance, much louder, and still she will scarcely hear thee. Louder yet, vengeance, with a little oath or so added, and yet it will hardly bring her. Send other women up and down to seek her, lingering somewhere, and yet, although the messengers have done dread deeds, it is questionable whether of their own wills they will go far enough to find her.' "'Bad fortune!' cries the vengeance, stamping her foot in the chair. "'And here are the tumbrils, and Evremond will be dispatched in a wink, and she not here. See her knitting in my hand, and her empty chair ready for her. I cry with vexation and disappointment!' As the vengeance descends from her elevation to do it, the tumbrils begin to discharge their loads. The ministers of Sainte Guillotine are robed and ready. 
Crash! A head is held up, and the knitting women, who scarcely lifted their eyes to look at it a moment ago when it could think and speak, count one. The second tumbrel empties and moves on. The third comes up. Crash! And the knitting women, never faltering or pausing in their work, count two. The supposed Evremond descends and the seamstress is lifted out next after him he has not relinquished her patient hand in getting out but still holds it as he promised he gently places her with her back to the crashing engine that constantly whirs up and falls and she looks into his face and thanks him but for you dear stranger i should not be so composed for i am naturally a poor little thing faint of heart nor should i have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death that we might have hope and comfort here to-day i think you were sent to me by heaven or you to me says sydney carton keep your eyes upon me dear child and mind no other object i mind nothing while i hold your hand i shall mind nothing when i let it go if they are rapid they will be rapid fear not the two stand in the fast-thinning throng of victims, but they speak as if they were alone, eye to eye, voice to voice, hand to hand, heart to heart, these two children of the universal mother, else so wide apart and differing, have come together on the dark highway to repair home together and to rest in her bosom. "'Brave and generous friend, will you let me ask you one last question? I am very ignorant, and it troubles me just a little.' "'Tell me what it is.' "'I have a cousin, an only relative and an orphan, like myself, whom I love very dearly. She is five years younger than I, and she lives in a farmer's house in the south country. Poverty parted us, and she knows nothing of my fate, for I cannot write, and if I could, how should I tell her? It is better as it is. Yes, yes, better as it is. What I have been thinking as we came along, and what I am still thinking now as I look into your kind, strong face, which gives me so much support, is this. If the Republic really does good to the poor, and they come to be less hungry, and in all ways to suffer less, she may live a long time. She may even live to be old. What then, my gentle sister? Do you think— the uncomplaining eyes in which there is so much endurance fill with tears, and the lips part a little more and tremble, that it will seem long to me while I wait for her in the better land where I trust both you and I will be mercifully sheltered. It cannot be, my child, there is no time there and no trouble there. You comfort me so much, I am so ignorant. Am I to kiss you now? Is the moment come? Yes. She kisses his lips. He kisses hers. They solemnly bless each other. The spare hand does not tremble as he releases it. Nothing worse than a sweet, bright constancy is in the patient face. She goes next before him. Is gone. The knitting women count twenty-two. 
I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The murmuring of many voices, the upturning of many faces, the pressing on of many footsteps in the outskirts of the crowd, so that it swells forward in a mass like one great heave of water, all flashes away. 23. They said of him about the city that night that it was the peacefulest man's face ever beheld there. Many added that he looked sublime and prophetic. One of the most remarkable sufferers by the same axe, a woman, had asked at the foot of the same scaffold not long before to be allowed to write down the thoughts that were inspiring her. If he had given any utterance to his, and they were prophetic, they would have been these. I see Barsad and Cly, Defarge, the Vengeance, the Juryman, the Judge, long ranks of the new oppressors who have risen on the destruction of the old, perishing by this retributive instrument before it shall cease out of its present use. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss, and in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats, through long years to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. I see the lives for which I lay down my life peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy in that England which I shall see no more. I see her with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see her father, aged and bent, but otherwise restored and faithful to all men in his healing office and at peace. I see the good old man, so long their friend, in ten years' time enriching them with all he has, and passing tranquilly to his reward. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts, and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. And I know that each was not more honoured and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man winning his way up in that path of life which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. I see him, foremost of just judges and honoured men, bringing a boy of my name, with a forehead that I know, and golden hair, to this place, then fair to look upon, with not a trace of this day's disfigurement, and I hear him tell the child my story, with a tender and a faltering voice. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. 
End of Book Three, Chapter Fifteen. Recording by Paul Adams. www.yawnguy.com. End of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens.